Welcome to the Diverse Minds Podcast, where we give you the tips, tools, and techniques you need to be a mentally healthy and inclusive leader. Each week, you'll hear about a variety of topics linked to mental health, well-being, and diversity that will enhance both your professional practice and personal well-being. Welcome to the 151st episode of the award-winning Diverse Minds podcast. And as you know, July is all about looking at lived experiences, what they mean and how they shape the world around us. And to join me today is the amazing Maya Goodfellow. She's an author, academic and broadcaster specializing in the relationships between race, bordering and capitalism. Ideal for the show, right? She's currently a Leverhulme Early Career Research Fellow at Sheffield Political Economy Research Institute at the University of Sheffield. And her first book, Hostile Environment, How Immigrants Became Scapegoats, was published with Verso in 2019 and was long listed for the Jalak Prize. Maya received her PhD from SOAS, University of London in 2019, and she has written for The Guardian and The New York Times, among others. And I'm so delighted to have her with us today. So Maya, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's a real honour. And I was saying, you know, I know that you're a very prolific person, so we really value your time. And I've just given a sense of your bio and an overview, but I think it's really nice for listeners to hear more about you and what you do from your perspective. Yeah, so I guess I do a few things. So like my main role at the moment is I work at Sheffield University as a research, a Levine research, early career research fellow. Um, and so that really involves doing research as you might imagine um, and so like my day-to-day is you know whether it is writing things up whether it is conducting interviews or uh, doing archival research but alongside sort of my academic career I also do bits and pieces of media so whether that is doing broadcast media like interviews on the BBC or Sky or Al Jazeera or whether that is writing and so I guess with the journalistic side it's also that kind of that research that I'm doing on the academic side, some of that translates through to the, the the journalistic writing that I do. So one of the things I try to do, I'm not sure I'm always successful, is to try and translate some of the things that exist within academia that don't always make it out like the rest of the world in a in an accessible way. Try and translate some of those that thinking to broader audiences is like what I strive to do, but it's uh, yeah very it's a very difficult thing to do. So I'm not sure I always will get that right, but that's that's how I sort of see those two tracks of my career relating to each other. Yeah, brilliant. And what was your journey to becoming an academic? So how did you, did you always know that you wanted to be an academic and be in this sort of area of academia? Um, It's a really good question. And no, I don't think I did. I didn't, I I don't think I did always want to be an academic. I um, originally thought I was actually going to do journalism full-time, I think. Um, So I actually started after I did a master's, I started in like the think tank world I had a paid at the time rare paid internship in the think tank and I sort of decided that wasn't for me I then ended up was very lucky sort of got a job at a website that covered news and comment from across the labor movement and so I actually reported on the 2015 general election um like one of my it felt like one of my jobs was sort of like following Ed Miliband the then labor leader around the country but whilst I was doing that I suppose one of the things with that kind of work is it, it you are sort of following a news cycle and it can feel it can be it can feel difficult and I'm sure this isn't the case for all people who do journalism because there's all different kinds of journalism out there but for me it felt like I didn't have enough time with certain issues or certain subjects to to think things through and you know I'm sure a lot of people who are political journalists 
do that in their spare time or make the time to dive in deep to certain issues but I just didn't feel like I had that sort of grounding that academic grounding in like really core issues so one of the things I work on is thinking a lot about immigration and borders and I just felt like I didn't have enough knowledge about those subjects and obviously like formal academia is not the only way to learn about these things like there were all kinds of really useful ways of learning about I don't know whether it's history of immigration or whether it's about British capitalism that isn't the academy but at the time that seemed like the route for me that seemed sort of the most clear or obvious and so I, I did a PhD that was actually in looking at race and racism in international British international development like primarily the reason I the other reason I ended up doing that was because I'd grown up in a household where like international development was always sort of questioned and like my, my mum was born in Uganda, like raised in India for part of her life and then moved to Britain and so had this like real, I uh, still has this real difficulty with the international development and how it's talked about in the public domain. And so one of the reasons I ended up in academia as well is because I had questions about that, that I suppose I'd been raised to think about and but I didn't have enough knowledge about it. And so it seemed like a good place to go and think about some you know big questions and in a lot of ways it's real like privilege to be able to have that time to sit and think and learn and write it wasn't totally planned but that's kind of how I ended up in the academy I guess yeah that's unusual actually isn't it like you said you felt you didn't have enough time to explore those subjects in depth or really know your subject and I think you know that's often the problem isn't it like you see reporting headlines um I remember it was a few years ago around adoption it was actually it was not adoption it was about fostering and it said that you know Muslim children are put into white households and I thought that's interesting because Muslims can be from any background and any walk of life and any culture so this kind of things that then insidious and then get woven into our everyday linguistics and language and perspectives and the fact that you wanted to really get in there to have the facts I think is so important um, because as you know journalism is meant to be really robust and it isn't always if we pick up certain tabloid papers we we know this is the case yeah and and, and I, I guess it's, I suppose it's also useful to say that uh, a lot of academics who like, I don't know if there's any academics listening to this, is once you're sort of post PhD, it's not necessarily the case that you do have all that time. Like a lot of people are sort of overburdened with teaching and the way that universities are structured now. But yes, certainly it, it times feels like, and this can obviously happen in sort of any profession. It can happen in academia too. It's not as if academics are like all, all knowing all-knowing individuals but I often think about the fact that in the not the official version but like the, the leaked version of the uh, investigation into the Windrush scandal the Wendy Williams um, report and actually in the final thing as well there was an iteration of this and she, she talked about how it was really important that people who work in the home office learn about Britain's colonial history in order to understand like how the so-called Windrush scandal happened and I remember at the time when that sort of news broke and I was really deep into researching my book that quite a few politicians seemed to not really know how it was that these people had ended up in this situation you know because they'd come like they had come as citizens or subjects of Britain because of the empire and for me that was really telling because it did it, it does did show and does show how like what we learn at school the kind of education we have access to really shapes the way that we understand the world and I really I really believe that actually this kind of like learning and thinking that I've been able to have the space to do should be available to anyone at any sort of stage in their life because 
yeah, like we're not all knowing. We always have more to learn. And I think that if people could have more space for that, it would make for like much better informed conversations about around these massive issues that are like often of public importance or like of a lot of political debate rather, such as immigration. You'd have a much more, I think you'd have a much more like a much better sort of understanding of these subjects or at least an ability to sort of tussle over them in a way that is maybe better informed than maybe we have at the moment. Yeah, because there isn't a week that goes by that there's not something in the media related to race, ethnicity, migration, culture. Yeah, so I think we all have a responsibility to learn as well and to understand and use media as sources of info, but not the gospel, if you like. And in your book, you talk about, you know, you use this term racial capitalism. And I just wondered, you know, what does that term mean to you? And why is it important for us to understand this? Yeah, another very good question. And I will probably not do justice to anyone listening who also has read a lot about racial capitalism. This is not a definitive uh, sort of understanding, but I guess the whether you want to call it racial capitalism or the whether you want to think about the whether you want to see it as like thinking about the ways that race can be produced through capitalism. I suppose one of the reasons for thinking about this is that when we talk about race in the public debate, it's often seen as like either historic or contemporary prejudice, like individual people doing bad things. And that happens, obviously that exists. So I wouldn't want to downplay like, whether that is violence in the streets, whether that's discrimination at work, I wouldn't want to downplay any of that. But this is racial capitalism, I suppose, provides us or can provide us with the tools to thinking about how race can be produced through global capitalism. So the fact that we live in a capitalist society, so that doesn't necessarily, that doesn't mean like overlooking the way that like other factors can impact the way race is produced. So things like where you are in the world, what point in history you are, like it should actually draw attention to like the specificity of the moment. So what I mean by that is racism can change. So, so talking about racial capitalism doesn't mean there's like one theory of what racism, what racism is, and that is all it ever is. And it's only ever one group of people who are being discriminated against or exposed to vulnerability. But it's about recognizing that race is is produced by economic relations. So one of the ways of thinking about that is that the sort of train of thought that would say that capitalism sort of homogenizes and turns many people into wage laborers, the people who have to work to live, to have to sell their labor. Um, but one way of really understanding that is actually labor exploitation can develop differently. And so different people can be racialized in different ways and therefore exposed to different kinds of vulnerability. So. We could think about the fact, I mean, I would argue, I'm working on this now, so it's not maybe not quite so neatly thought through, but I would argue like immigration regimes can do that, right? In that they, that can divide people into low and high skilled workers and people who are, depending on what your skill set is deemed to be, you'll be able to have access to certain forms of rights. You'll be able to stay in the country for a particular amount of time. And we could see that as a sort of racializing process. So the fact that it's not only that you might be so-called a lower class or poorer, but it's also where you might come from in the world or how those skills that you have are seen to translate across into a context like Britain. So really, I guess, a long way of saying is that racial capitalism can be a way of thinking about the ways that people who are working class are stratified differently. So like there may be this hierarchy of humanity and that doesn't, that isn't to say that people who are white, like racialized as white and working class aren't also exploited, but it's just that exploitation can look different and the intensity of it can be different. I, th I think is one way, 
one way to think about it, certainly not the only way to think about it. Yeah, and of course, Dr. Ibrahim X. Kendi talks about that in his book around uh, racialization and goes back to the kind of commoditization of black bodies, how that's been the case, and that this whole idea of how uh, native peoples of South America and America were deemed as unfit for labor and slaughtered in mass, and the way that black people were effectively became African American and were incarcerated in various different ways around there. Yeah, so we could trace it back, and we, like you said, you can move it forward. Um, and there's also a book, and I can't remember who it's by, and I've not read it, but some Someone mentioned it in a session around how the Irish became white. So looking at the, yeah, you, you probably read it, the, the labour in America with Scottish and Irish migrant labourers um, and who's deemed white. As we know, there was this whole thing around if you're deemed white, you have access to things. And I think we see it now, don't we, if people are in you know, jobs where they've got access to employee assistance and programs in the workplace versus people that have got to be hidden in kitchens doing dishes who are more likely to be from global majority backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And just, yeah, ex- exactly as you say. And I suppose I should have said, like, right at the start of that, there's like a load of people who've done lots of really good work on this. So Cedric Robinson, the book Black Marxism is is like, is is generally mentioned when this idea of racial capitalism is, is talked about. And he was a scholar who um, is no longer alive, but like did that. I mean, his work goes beyond this sort of the way that I've described racial capitalism is more complicated than that. But there's people like Robbie Shilliam who've written about the undeserving poor. There's a, a whole like like range of scholars who are thinking through. And now this idea of like racial capitalism is quite popular. And so I suppose yeah, we have to be quite specific with how we're using it and how we're thinking about it. And one of the, some of the stuff that I'm reading at the moment is also drawing attention to the ways that like that race, the way that race can shift and change so that, you know, who is deemed to be like acceptable and in what ways or deemed to be exploitable, that can, that can and does. So exactly like you're saying how like certain groups can become white over time and how that can, those boundaries of what, what whiteness is can shift. Um, And I think for me, that's quite useful because it, calls attention like if you're thinking about things like immigration debates and again this isn't like something that I'm something I'm working on at the moment so it's not fully thought through but if you're thinking about immigration debates in Britain for instance you do have this 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 tension where it is people primarily from and the new Labour government actually looks towards in the early 2000s people primarily from Poland like parts of Eastern Europe they, they look to those countries and those people as the people who are going to be the so-called low-skilled labourers and so that like that should ask like I think forces to question like what's going on there with race like how are those people being depicted and what does that mean for like understanding whiteness I don't have a definitive answer on that but I think yeah that that the work that you mentioned is all sort of like helps us to think through some of these through some of these like questions and issues and also just to say like using terms like low skilled I obviously don't believe that like these are all constructs of like they, they, they sort of yeah. give value in that way yeah so what society deems as low skilled and what society deems as high skilled but we know now what is considered governmentally as low skilled we've got fruit rotting in the fields because people don't want to come and pick it so actually what is quote unquote low skilled we have a huge carers gap yeah so, yeah, yeah and i mean it, if there was ever going to be a time like the pandemic right and it's been said a million times but like the key workers who's like actually seem to be low skilled there's like loads of people who were like like delivering your food orders stacking the supermarket shelves like your delivery driver like that's will all be sort of dismissed in that way but Mm -hmm. basically doing vital work that keeps everyone alive 
Yeah, and I was talking to DJ uh, Mike Kiss about this and we were saying how bin collectors actually flipping heck, that's a bloody hard job and actually not many of us could do it and how undervalued that is. And if your bin isn't collected, you know about it. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, so so following on from your book published in 2019, Hostile Environment, How Immigrants Became Scapegoats, what do you think then are the biggest challenges in getting people to understand the devastating impacts that racism creates on mental health, thus creating mental ill health? Yeah, I, I guess like with regards to thinking specifically about immigration, which I suppose is what I've like sort of thought the most about on this subject, is that like one of the things to say is I interviewed loads of people for the book who like moved through the immigration system in some way. And so many people I spoke to talked about like the toll that just having to go through all the bureaucracy and like the insecurity of like you're not knowing like what your status is going to be, the potential of being like ripped away from your family, your friends, like your community. One of the things that's like really misleadingly said in the immigration debate is that like immigration, but also like, you know, racial intermixing is sort of one of the it's it's often said is, although it's not said in such stark terms, is that like bad for so-called integration? Like I would reject that term anyway, these ideas of social cohesion, I would reject. But I think it's really telling that actually the immigration system disrupts the, the sense of community people build because it because of the ways that it forces people to be moved about and some people deported, some people you know aren't able to live with their um, children, their their friends, their family. Um, so yeah, just there is a there's a lot of understandable distress that is created by the immigration system and one of the people I always remember one of the people I interviewed saying like it really feels like it's designed to make you feel like this and obviously it is right the government sent go home bans around people in certain neighborhoods and all those people I spoke to were certainly way more than their immigration status and like were resisting in all kinds of ways and had lives beyond trying to navigate the immigration system but it's just that it did become so all-consuming and I guess in terms of like the challenges it's like the, those people are not seen as people they are so often just sort of the way that it's talked about in the media the way that it's talked about even in like some academic quarters is like just like numbers on a page and there's a, a there's I always remember the late great theorist Stuart Hall, cultural theorist Stuart Hall uh saying you know as soon as you say a number it's too many it's always going to be too many. As soon as you say any number when it comes to immigration rates, it's just, it's always going to be too many. And so there's like obviously stitched into all of this is a, a total stripping away of people's humanity. It's also seen, I think sometimes as somewhat legitimate to be treating people in quite cruel ways. If it means it's going to supposedly weed out the people who are, who are, um, how should be here and the people who shouldn't be here. So this very extractive idea that you know, people should only be allowed into the country if they benefit the economy, which I think is a really terrible way to think about any human being. Well, I think some people see this, the outcomes of the immigration system as like an accident or like a, a, um, a glitch, a glitch in, in the system, something that needs to be corrected. But actually, I would argue that these kinds of sort of ways of treating people and this cruelty is embedded into the immigration system. So to I think to truly sort of get people to see the impact of things like the immigration system you really need to understand that it's intentionally designed like that and any immigration system is going to exclude and like that is just the reality of it the the, the sort of metrics by which you exclude it can be changed altered and changed but an immigration system is is inherently about exclusion and i suppose that's that can be quite an unpopular thing to, to sort of 
say that you don't agree with, but I don't agree with that. And I guess for me, it's to really get people to to understand how how much these systems can ruin people's lives is to say, should anyone really be exposed to them in the first place? I would I would argue not. Yeah, and I think about the citizenship test, and I just think I don't think many of us would pass that. <laughs> Yeah, they're just ridiculous <laughs> questions that I've seen. You know, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but but yeah, and I'm I'm thinking. You know, we're talking about in, in obviously migration and immigration and refugee. They are separate things, and again, they mesh together. And we're having this conversation during Refugee Week in the UK, and I just also think about the lack of support and services available that acknowledge the things you've just talked about for immigrants as well. So again we go back to you know go get some counsel and go do this if you have to spend the bulk of the time explaining that to someone that's not going to be healing if someone doesn't take into account your cultural references and does that makes you have cbt which is a very eurocentric thing how is that really going to help you recover from this ordeal absolutely i think that's a really important point and like often these like the immigration processes themselves are re-traumatizing so like all the stuff we talked about before about understanding like these histories and understanding the, this the, how this present is a product of some of those histories it's like it surely would be essential for anyone who's going to be supporting anyone who'd had to sort of is having to navigate this or anyone who's had to move countries for whatever reason they've had to do like we just know the services are really threadbare there's like, loads of really amazing people out there doing really like doing that support work but it's too few people and the one person I interviewed for the book who does that at the time was doing the, this kind of like immigration advice work said like everyone burns out and because there's so there's so much need the system is so complicated and there's just so little funding so few people and like he, I remember him saying like again it really feels like they design it to like and obviously that's very difficult to sort of prove but like his sort of view is that everything is such that it's all piled on top of that, whether you're providing the support or whether you're on the uh, end of like experiencing some of this. And obviously those two categories are not separate. People can be doing both. It's so overwhelming for people. And yeah, it just doesn't feel like there's in any way enough support. And then thinking about workplaces, and I, I know I think about the whole spectrum of workplaces and often charities that workplaces will support, they might be tied to a particular um, month or event. So we're, we're also in Pride Month at the moment. So people are quite happy organisations to change their logo to a Pride flag or, you know, during Women's History Month, put on events, but they can be for one strata of society. Breast cancer charities, cancer charities. Now, I'm not for one minute saying that shouldn't be supported. That's That's great. But... Actually, if we're going to make some headway in this, people need to kind of have these conversations and understand the aspects that you picked up on Maya. So what do you think workplaces should be doing to talk about this topic, open up the conversation so it's not seen as quote unquote too political, not for the workplace, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, I think, I guess I wish the starting point would be that actually to do nothing or to say nothing or to not allow like this discussion or to not, like in some way trying to address some of these things is itself like political, like being silent on certain issues is a political choice. And I suppose it sort of depends on the workplace that we're thinking of because some workplaces, I guess, are not so invested or it wouldn't really work for there to be like thoroughgoing conversations around this because then, then it would be, you know, having conversations around why is it that like 
so many of the people and um, you know I, th I like to think about like this is the case in universities as well like so many of the people who clean the building on such poor pay are from marginalized communities or minoritized communities or have in like it or have insecure immigration status like potentially like that is sort of it's much easier for an organization to sort of show that it supports a certain cause than to actually reflect on who's doing what work within the building uh, if there is a building and how that's commensurate, like how what people's salaries are, whether those people are outsourced, who's outsourced, who's not. Um, and so I, I suppose my sort of like the way that I think we should think about these things is to start with the people who are the most marginalized in the organization. That should be your starting point to think about why that is, who that is, how you can change that. And then from there, like it is the sort of, um, like that's not a new thought obviously that's like been part of uh, political organizing for decades is that you you, you center the most marginalized and I think that that should apply in in like the work workplace too and like for me that is about thinking about how things like race and class disability and um, sexuality how these things all work together in order to sort of marginalize people I guess I mean it's not a yeah I don't know that that's like such a like clear answer to your question but I do think that for me that is like that is the thing that we should be thinking about is who is like who's in the room and mm. who's who's being heard and I think this is a the issue with often networks and things they're great but yeah like you said who's in the room and you know I know organizations that set up senior women's network and you have to be a, a particular grade and it's just people you know from the same background talking to themselves and it's not really looking at as you said what's the marginalization on the ground and what are we going to do to change it because actually those things could be changed quite easily then it's not rocket science as I always say <laughs> and so you you mentioned burnout and people that work in this space burning out and as a busy professional yourself I'd really love to know how you look after your mental health while doing this work and what are your top three tips oh god <laughs> oh I now I'm gonna like expose myself as like the most weird like the most awful cliche so I think like for, for I mean for anyone I, I suppose like one thing is to depending on who you are what you do like it I guess this differs but like knowing that it's it's sort of it's not you I think for me is a sort of comforting place like knowing that this is what work often does and like there is like an exploitative relationship that's what like if you think about how capitalism is structured when you know talking about all the stuff around racial capitalism obviously there's different degrees of that but just the, one of the things that I guess provides me with some kind of sanity is just reminding myself because I'm really someone as well who can get very caught up in like must work all the hours in the day must do everything and apply myself and uh, and like sort of taking a step back and actually thinking uh, once in a while like what is my life for and obviously that's like a luxurious position to be in some that's not the case for everyone depending on what your work is but just even having that awareness that it's not in your head it's not you it's not you're not doing enough this is like how it's structured is to sort of make you feel like that is to take as much of your time away from you as possible so that's I, I guess like a, a tip is <laughs> just to sort of like think it in that way I mean for me I like do do the most cringe thing in the world which is and I did just get into this during the pandemic so I'm just like basically a cliche guardian leader is I like got into open water swimming <laughs> and actually for me that is just like that's just something I do that I really enjoy it's like basically if you can find anything in your life where you um if you can afford to do it if, or if it's free or if there's like time to do it 
those are all things that not everyone has I know but if you can like carve out that space to do that thing like for me just swimming I can't look at my phone I can't think about anything else I'm just thinking about like don't drown don't freeze to death if it's cold like just uh, yeah for me that's like very that's the way that's just the thing that works really well and yeah I guess like trying to find and I probably should have said this before the swimming thing if I'm doing it in order of like ranking but never mind uh like trying to find people who are on the same page and want to fight for the same thing so yeah like burnout is real for me in order to sort of like be, get, be able to get up in the morning I ha- there has to be things that I am invested in trying to change things around me and I wouldn't make any lofty claims about what I'm doing there's way more people out there doing way more than I am but like having people who are like on the same page who want to fight for the same things is one of the things that like keeps me going because it, otherwise it, I, I suppose with some of this like like mental health um stuff there's like a route where it can become very just individualistic and it really actually the collective is where the joy and the change and the possibility is and so I probably should have started with that actually if I was ranking um like finding that common space and finding that whatever that is that you want to like work together with other people to change that is like where the where the like the I think that yeah the true sort of joy can come from yeah, that's really good. And I don't think anyone said that. So just about, yeah, the collective, find people on the same page. And I don't think it's cliched about open water swimming. I think it's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I know lots of people do it, but I think it's really great. Yeah, although now it's like all I feel like I talk about. It's really, it's really like a lifestyle thing. It's so bad. But it's is also like, I, I think for me, actually that one, and this is sort of like on the individualistic thing. And I don't know if you have anything like this in your life. But like, I'm someone who's quite cautious. And for me, the open water swimming thing is something that I find quite scary. And so it is the sort of, uh, the, I don't know if you know, like the Wim Hof, like sort of thinking is like, again, I would prefer like the collective stuff and think about that. But obviously we also have to survive as like ourselves every once in a while. And so for me, it is like this thing that I fear, even, you know, I've been doing it for like now two years in the winter, I still fear it because I fear what could happen to me. And like the ability to overcome that and do it is like, there's something really like, that feels like there's power in that. So whatever that looks like for you, whatever that is, is like sort of pushing the boundaries a bit on like what's possible, I guess, without, yeah, that seeming sounding like too much of a sort of cliche individualism kind of live your best life thing but for me that sort of works in a in a in a way of like it's a survival mode though isn't it like and to remind yourself that I've been through some tough stuff and actually I can get through it because I can get through doing this I can use that learning in the day-to-day so no I think it's I don't think it's living your best life hashtag open water <laughs> swimming <laughs> So Maya, it's been brilliant to talk to you and thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your wisdom. And if people want to know more about your work, how should they contact you? So if you want to know more, they can, I've got Twitter, they can contact me on Twitter or they can email me. I'm never opposed to hearing from people like talking things through or like chatting about to people about their work if it's like on a similar sort of subject. Yeah, like you can Google me and my email address is publicly available at my, my Sheffield University, University email address. But yeah, always happy to hear from people who want to like discuss any of these things um, that we've talked about. And yeah, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for asking. I feel like I'm going to, the open water swimming thing, I'm going <laughs> to 
I like always say, think, should I say it? And then I always end up saying it and then I always sort of regret saying it. But, um, yeah, thanks for a good set of questions that I think I'll be thinking about like in the days to come. No, thanks so much, everyone. And you hope you've enjoyed it. And I will include your links in the show notes and take care, everyone. And do tune in next week where we'll be talking about lived experiences and how they shape the world around us. Until next time, bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Diverse Minds podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access your podcasts from. You can also connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Tune into next week's episode of the podcast, where I'll bring you more insights on mental health and inclusion. Bye for now.